Let's get rolling. We got a lot to get through today. I promise you today I'm going to talk very fast. So I know you guys are excited to hear that. Normally I go real slow and methodical for you, but I'm going to pick up the pace a little bit today. That's just a joke. Try to stay with me. Okay. So we are going to pick up where we left off. We've been in the series, Whatever Happened to the Power of God. We've been ex- looking at, like, where did God go? What happened to Him? Why is He not here? He's been absent. He's kind of like a missing father. Yeah, you claim to have created us, but where the heck did you go? Why aren't you here? Why are there sick people? Why are bad things happening? Why do good things or bad things happen to good people? Right? We've got all these questions we need to be able to answer. And so we have to begin to look at it from a scriptural standpoint, understanding why God moves. And what we began to do a few weeks ago is looking at the expectation of God. We were discussing this a little bit this morning. There's a theology that's become prevalent once again. Now you know there is nothing new under the sun. I promise you, as soon as you think you've got this amazing revelation about God or something, Google it, somebody beat you to it, I almost guarantee it. Actually, don't Google it because that's owned by the devil himself. But uh, use a different search engine. But the bottom line is, is that there's nothing new. All of these heresies pop up from time to time. The latest one is trying to deal with the character of God because you've got this God of the Old Testament that's just constantly killing people. And then you got this God of the New Testament in Jesus who's just peace, love, and mercy. Everything's good. It's all sunshine and lollipops. And he was killed by those evil people. So what do we do with that? Dealing with that tension. Well, one thing we have to do is we have to understand what the character of God is. How do you get to know the character of any person on this earth? Perhaps you get close to them. It doesn't take much. If I want to get to know Stan Griffin and what makes Stan Griffin tick, I don't want to take the opinion of Paul. It will be a mischaracterization. I can promise you that. Right? Because whatever comes out of the mouth of Paul about Stan has a little slight bent to it, okay? So I need to get to know Stan. I'm just warming you up, Stan. Are you ready for this? It's going to be a good day, buddy. So... What do we do? We got to go to the Scriptures and look at the character of who God is. And when we did that, and we began this, we start to see patterns develop. Patterns of who God says that He is. We've started every week in Psalm 103, verse 1. Bless the Lord, O my soul. All that is within me, bless His holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all His benefits. Alright, here's the something for you guys to understand. Put this into perspective. If a, you know what one of the benefits is of being around Stan Griffin? Is that you'll learn more about Oklahoma football than you ever cared to know in your life. He remembers the place that he was when Johnny the Jet Rogers ran that touchdown back. He remembers how many tears he shed, and he still lies about a block in the back, this fictitious play... Listen, listen, listen. They didn't take it to replay. That's not our fault, okay? The bottom line is, is listen, part of the benefit of being around Stan Griffin is, well, you guys know. All right? The biggest benefit of Stan Griffin is he brings Janet with him, right? Am I right? Come on now, somebody. That's right. There you go. All right. I'm getting off the hot seat with somebody. But it says the benefits of God. We don't forget them. He forgives our iniquities. He heals our diseases. He redeems our life from destruction. He crowns you with loving kindness and tender mercies. He satisfies your mouth with good things so that your youth is renewed like the eagles. These are the benefits and the exemplification of God's character on His chosen people in a covenant. Correct? That's what it is. So when David writes this, he's saying, listen guys, this is the God that we serve. These are the benefits. We saw this in the New Testament. We've looked at this. I'm going to go through this quickly, but about the Messianic miracles. Do I have that list up there today? I do. Good. I got a head nod. Remember, there was an expectation when the Messiah came that these four things that he would do, which would be a sign to the people that he was the Messiah. They got these from different studies of scriptures and teachings of the rabbis and whatnot. But the bottom line is this. They believed only the Messiah could do this. Now, I don't want to go into too much detail, but remember, leprosy was given by God as a result of sin. It was judgment. Therefore, only God himself could remove it. The deaf and dumb spirit, the practice was that they had to get the name of the demon that was in a person in order to cast them out. This was the practice that was used there. And so if they can't hear and they can't speak, they can't get the name. Thus, they can't cast him out. Only God could do that. Healing of any birth defects was 
a result, the birth defects himself, blindness, whether you were lame, whatever, uh, was a result of either your sins or your parents' sins. So without that, uh, only God could take care of that. And of course, Jesus does that. And you see this whole thing. And of course, raising the dead after the third day, they believe the spirit of man stayed with the man for three days, but on day four or past, that only God himself could raise him up. And Jesus did that with Lazarus. Now, why are these so crucial? It's because there was an expectation on the Messiah to perform these. This is how they would know that this was the Messiah. You realize that Jesus wasn't the first Messiah figure to appear to the nation of Israel. There had been many that had come through. Guess what? There's been many that have come since. And there will be many more. Ultimately, there will be one great big one that will show up and say, guess what? I'm your guy. We call him the Antichrist. So there's an expectation of that. And so we had to look at all of this stuff. What about the, the Mosaic Covenant? The covenant cut with the nation of Israel. We began to look at the different plagues. Because what we're looking at here is ultimately what atonement is. That's what Jesus did. The penal substitutionary atonement. That He stepped in in our place to take away our sins on our behalf. Big fancy word. That's what He did. He took the punishment for us. Why was there punishment? Because if God is just, then justice must be served. If you have sin, then justice must be served, or He's not just. So as we looked at these, and we looked at these, um, uh, as we read through the different parts of the Old Testament, like in Exodus chapter 15 as an example. Verse 22, Moses brought Israel to the Red Sea, and they went out into the wilderness of Shur, and they went three days in the wilderness and found no water. And when they come to Marah, they could not drink the waters of Marah, and they were bitter. Therefore, the name of it was called Marah, and the people complained against Moses, so what shall we drink? So he cried out to the Lord, and the Lord showed him a tree, and he cast it into the waters. And there he made a statute and ordinance, and there he tested them. He said, if you diligently heed the voice of the Lord your God and do what is right in his sight, give ear to his commandments and keep all the statue, I will put none of the diseases on you which I have brought on the Egyptian, for I am the Lord who heals you. Then they came to Elam, where the twelve wells of water and the seventy palm trees, and they camped by the waters. This little piece of uh, geography there. You see, there was an expectation. The covenant was conditional. If you do what I say, I am the God who heals you, and I will not put the plagues of Egypt on you. So what were the plagues? Well, that's what we looked at. We looked at all of them in depth. We looked how they were judgments against some of the gods of Egypt. Do I have those up there? I think I do. I might be getting out of order on these guys. These are some of them. If you remember, you got, and what was ironic is this is the same stuff that was on the rotation for uh, VBS. So I ended up talking about this stuff with them, which was kind of fun. But, you know, uh, and they loved this guy. They were wondering who rubbed the lamp to make him come out. Okay, try to keep up. So anyway, it says in multiple places that the plagues of Egypt were against the gods of Egypt. So, we have an expectation here that God constantly says that I will not put those on you and I am the Lord that heals you. It's dealing with the character of God. Therefore, if the character of God is to put sickness on them, does that go against the character of a God that we just read? Yes, it does. does the, if He puts the plagues of Egypt on them, does that go against what God just said He would do? Yes, it does. Unless they don't keep the commandments. You see, God was very clear. This is what's going to happen. He had taken a nation for Himself, carved them out. They were obviously called Israel. And they were to be set apart from all the other nations. They should not be worshiping these gods. Now, look at the next verse. Exodus chapter 23, verse 20. Behold, I send an angel before you to keep you in way and to bring you into the place which I have prepared. Beware of him and obey his voice. Don't provoke him, for he will not pardon your transgression, for my name is in him. But if you indeed obey his voice and do all that I speak, then I will be an enemy to your enemies and an adversary to your adversaries. My angel will go before you and bring you into the Amorites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Canaanites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites, and I will cut them off. You shall not bow down to their gods, nor serve them, nor do according to their works, but you shall utterly overthrow them and completely break down their sacred pillars. What's he going after? The gods there in these, these pagan lands. Verse 25. So you shall serve the Lord your God, and he will bless you, your bread and your water, and I will take sickness away from the midst of you. No one shall suffer miscarriage or be barren in your land. I will fulfill the number of your days. Now, we see this. We see what God's doing. He's keeping them separate, but we're watching his character. 
It all has to do with these covenants. That's what we're going to get into. He went against not just those nine. There are more. Those gods overlap. They had hundreds of gods. I'm just giving you a small sampling. The ultimate one being Pharaoh. And that's what we talked about last week. How we had Pharaoh who rose up and he was scared of the Jews because they were great in number. So he said, we're going to put tribulation on them. We're going to make them. And so uh, make them slaves. So what he does is to try to control the population is he kills every male child. And the midwives said, oh, they feared God so they wouldn't do it. And when he questioned them, they said, listen, they ain't like the Egyptian women, by the time we get there, the baby's already there. So what solution did he come up with? He said, hey, fine. When do you see them? Throw them in the Nile. The Nile was one of the gods. It was to bring instant death. How did Moses come down? Right. Through the Nile. Now, what I was showing you is how did Israel end up in Egypt in the first place? It was because of Joseph. Joseph being sold into slavery. Uh, there was a plague, or not a plague, but a famine in the land. And so Joseph literally saved the people from coming, uh, from dying. They come up to Egypt. That's why they're there. They were prospering there. They continue to prosper in spite of the hardship because when they leave, which we'll read about a little bit today, is they don't leave broke. They leave rich. They had tons of stuff. But I was showing you a pattern here because remember, Israel was called God's firstborn son in the book of Exodus. The judgment against Pharaoh, the final, the death angel, the one that comes in, was against the firstborn sons. So there's a pattern. So Jesus is born. He's called his firstborn son. And then what happens? So the Magi come in. They tell Herod. Herod freaks out. The Magi don't come back. So he says, all right, we're going to have every two-year-old male killed. That way we'll take care of it. In Bethlehem, tiny little town, smaller than Rockport. And so, of course, there's going to be some dissension. So an angel tells Joseph, listen, I need you to go to Egypt. Well, again, a pattern develops. How did Jesus end up in Egypt? Joseph took him there. Obviously different Josephs, but it's just ironic, right? There's no accidents in the Bible. So they end up in the same place. When, when did Joseph come back? After the angel appeared, he had a dream. And it says, listen, the one who was trying to kill the boy is now dead. Now think about that. When did Moses go back to Egypt? When the angel appeared to him and said, the men who are after your life are now dead. These patterns developed there. And we're going to build off of that today. Because what happens is that the angel of death, the angel, and we know that this is, it, it's, well, I shouldn't say we know that. We postulate that this is nothing more than Jesus himself pre-incarnate. That this angel of the Lord that comes is Jesus himself. Uh, there's good reasons for that. I don't want to get into all of that. But now we're going to talk about here is the Passover. Now, I originally planned to go into the details about the Passover. I'm not going to do that today because I want, to watch, want you to see what happens here. And I promise I'm not going to keep you too late. So let's start in Exodus chapter 12, verse 1. Now the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, saying, This month shall be the beginning of months. It shall be the first month of the year to you. So he's changing the calendar. It was the seventh month. Now it's month number one. Speak to all the congregation of Israel, saying, On the tenth of this month, every man shall take for himself a lamb, according to the house of his father, a lamb for a household. And if the household is too small for the lamb, let him and his neighbor next to his house take it according to the number of the persons. According to each man's need, you shall make your count for the lamb. Your lamb shall be without blemish, a male of the first year. You may take it from a sheep or the goats. Now shall you should keep it until the 14th day of the same month. Then in the whole assembly of the congregation, Israel shall kill it at twilight, approximately 6 o'clock, somewhere in that range. And they shall take some of the blood and put it in the on the two doorposts and on the lintel of the house where they eat it. Then they shall eat the flesh on that night, roasted in a fire without, with unleavened bread and with bitter herbs, and they shall eat it. Do not eat it raw, nor boiled at all with water, but roasted it in fire, its head and its legs and its entrails. You shall, not let, you shall let none of it remain until morning, and what remains of it until morning you should burn with fire. And thus you shall eat it with a belt on your waist and sandals on your feet and your staff in your hand, so you shall eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. Passover. Now let's pause for just a second. We're getting ready. We're in the description of Passover. Now look how specific God is being here. It's not like, listen, go pick an animal. Listen, if you want to smoke it, if you want to, you know, want to pan fry that sucker, um, you know, if it was in America, we'd deep fry that thing. I mean, whatever. We'd, we'd come up with a way. We'd batter it, fry it, and rub it in peanut butter cups. But he's being very specific. All of it. Without blemish without spot a young lamb one for the family pick it out early you're going to hang on to it for a few days you're going to get to know this guy he's going to become a pet essentially all of this stuff and how they eat it is very important 
Verse 12, I will pass through the land of Egypt on that night. Who does? God does, right? And will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast. Against all the gods of Egypt, I will execute judgment. I am the Lord. So why do I tell you these are going against the gods of Egypt? Because God said that. Now, the blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you. And the plague shall not be on you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. So, God's going to come in. There's one way to avoid this judgment. It's the blood of the Lamb. I know I've said this before. But it doesn't matter that they killed Him. It doesn't matter that they ate Him. All that mattered was that blood was applied on the doorpost. Now, when we do this normally, and I'm not going to go this direction today, but we normally see like three little spots. They were to take hyssop, dip it in the blood. They didn't paint it on there. This was not some Sherwin-Williams thing where you got this nice broad thing that's going on. They would come and they would say to strike the doorpost and the lintels. You notice the shape I just made. Because that's how it would have worked. They'd have gone back and forth. It made the shape of a cross. Now, so they can avoid it under this circumstance and only this circumstance. Verse 14, so this day shall be a memorial to you, and you shall keep it as a feast to the Lord throughout your generation. You shall keep it as a feast by an everlasting ordinance forever. Seven days you shall eat unleavened bread. On the first day you shall remove leaven from your houses. What's leaven a sign of? Sin, because it puffs up. What was the first sin? Pride. If you chase the root of every single sin out there, what is it? It's always pride. On the first day you shall remove leaven from your houses, for whoever eats leavened bread from the first day until the seventh day, that person shall be cut off from Israel. On the first day there shall be a holy convocation, and on the seventh day there shall be a holy convocation for you. No manner of work shall be done on them, but that which everyone must eat, and that only may be prepared by you. So you you shall observe the feast of unleavened bread, for on this same day I will have brought your armies out of the land of Egypt. Therefore you shall observe this day throughout your generation as an everlasting ordinance. In the first month, on the fourteenth day of the month, at evening you shall eat unleavened bread until the twenty-first day of the month at evening. For seven days no leaven shall be found in your houses, since whoever eats what is leavened, that same person shall be cut off from the congregation of Israel, whether he is a stranger or a native land. Can I explain that real quick i want you to understand this because right now with what's going on politically when we see that word stranger when you see the word israel or not israel but alien excuse me what you go into these different passages that you should take in the alien take in the foreigner and all of that all right that is not meaning that we open our doors that does not mean that we open our borders and just let anybody that comes in that specifically is talking about these way these people would come in and become part of the nation of israel they have to first recognize yahweh as the one true god in order to do that they must reject all other gods the other thing they must do they must become circumcised and they must reject their heritage and assimilate into the culture and if they did those things then the israelites were to look on that person as a native-born israelite and not a foreigner the same thing our same system works here is that when somebody comes in they assimilate into the culture and it's just as if they were born here so please do not let people misuse those verses we can deal with the stuff going on down there another day but the bottom line is that is exactly what this is talking about Okay, I'm off my soapbox. Verse 20, you shall eat nothing leaven, and all your dwellings you should eat unleavened bread. Verse 21, then Moses called for all the elders of Israel and said, pick out and take lambs for yourselves according to your families and kill the Passover lamb. And you shall take a bunch of hyssop, dip it in the blood that is in the basin, and strike the lentil and the two doorposts with the blood that is in the basin. And none of you shall go out of the door of his house until morning. For the Lord will pass through and strike the Egyptians. And when he sees the blood on the lintel on the two uh, doorposts, the Lord will pass over the door and not allow the destroyer to come into your houses to strike you. And you shall observe this thing as an ordinance for you and your sons forever. It will come to pass when you come to the land, which the Lord will give you just as he promised, and you shall keep this service. And it shall be when your children say to you, what do you mean by this service? That you shall say, it is the Passover sacrifice of the Lord who passed over the houses of the children of Israel in Egypt when he struck the Egyptians and delivered our household. So the people bowed their heads and worship then the children of israel went away and did so just as the lord had commanded moses and aaron so they did so here's all the directions they have to do it what's the key it's the blood of the lamb you don't apply the blood it doesn't matter if you apply the blood but you're standing out there mowing the lawn guess what you're not inside that protective covering 
So you have to be there. So what do we see happen after this? Verse 29, it came to pass at midnight that the Lord struck all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, from the firstborn of Pharaoh who sat on his throne to the firstborn of the captive who was in the dungeon and all the firstborn of the livestock. So Pharaoh rose in the night, he, all his servants, and all the Egyptians, and there was a great cry in Egypt, for there was not a house where there was not one dead. Now remember we talked about Pharaoh was worshipped as God. This final judgment is against him. The firstborn son sat on a throne, kind of like the God-in-waiting. He, too, was looked at as God. There was judgment coming. This would have happened to any Israelite that did not follow the Passover uh, protocol. I know it sounds like crazy. It sounds like there's a lot of stuff to deal with, and you're right. There is. It's very important that they understood this and executed it the way they're supposed to. But there was a purpose for all of this. You have to understand what was going on because these were not good people. These were evil people that they're being judged here. So, verse 31, Then he called for Moses and Aaron by night and said, Rise, go out from among my people, both you and the children of Israel, and go, serve the Lord as you have said. Also take your flocks and your herds and all as you have said, and be gone, and bless me also. This is Pharaoh talking. Get out. And the Egyptian urged the people that they might send them out of the land in haste, for they said, We shall all be dead. So the people took their dough before it was leavened, having their kneading bowls bound up and their clothes, and their shoulders. Now the children of Israel had done according to the word of Moses, and they had asked from the Egyptians articles of silver, gold, clothing, and the Lord had given the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians, so that they granted them what they requested. And they plundered the Egyptians. Then the children of Israel journeyed from Ramesses to Sukkoth, about 600,000 men on foot besides children. A mixed multitude went up with them also, and flocks and herds and a great deal of livestock, and they baked unleavened cakes of the dough which they had brought out of Egypt, for it was not leavened because they were driven out of Egypt and could not wait, nor had they prepared provisions for themselves. Now the sojourn of the children of Israel who lived in Egypt was 430 years, and it came to pass at the end of 430 years, on that very same day, it came to pass that all the armies of the Lord went out from the land of Egypt. It is a night of solemn observance to the Lord for bringing them out of the land of Egypt. This is that night of the Lord's a solemn observance for all the children of Israel throughout their generations. Now I know that was a mouthful, but the 430 years is exactly what God told Abraham would happen. They would be there and they'd be there for that amount of time. It says they left on the very day that God said was going to happen. That is not a coincidence. It was all executed according to plan. But if Pharaoh would have not hardened his heart at any point in time, we would have never gotten to this point. But as we've seen many, many other times is that we watch these pictures and patterns develop throughout scriptures all for a reason. Because we know who ultimately is the Passover lamb. It is Jesus. Behold the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. That's not colorful language. That is exactly who he was. So now, as they're leaving and they're heading out, we know what happens, right? Right? Pharaoh has a change of heart. He's going to go after them. Now let's watch again. Let's start watching how these patterns develop. All we're looking at is the expectation of God inside of His covenant and His promises. Will He behave according to His word? That's the question. We're specifically dealing with healing. So let's look at Exodus 14. We're going to fast forward a little bit. The Lord spoke to Moses saying, Speak to the children of Israel that they turned and camped before that place, I don't know how you say that, between Migdal and the sea opposite Baals of Phone, and you shall camp there before it by the sea. For Pharaoh will say to the children of Israel, they are bewildered by the land, and the wilderness has closed them in. Then I will harden Pharaoh's heart so that he will pursue them, and I will gain honor over Pharaoh and over all his army, that the Egyptians may know that I am the Lord. And they did so. Now it was told to the king of Egypt that the people had fled, and that the heart of Pharaoh and his servants was turned against the people. And they said, why have we done this, that we have let Israel go from serving us? So he made ready his chariot and took his people with him. Also, he took 600 choice chariots and all the chariots of Egypt with the captains over them, uh, every one of them. And the Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and he pursued the children of Israel. And the children of Israel went out with boldness. So the Egyptians pursued them, all the horses and chariots of Pharaoh, his horsemen, his army, and overtook them camping by the sea besides Pi-Heroeth, or however you say that, before Baal-Saphon. So what's happened? They've got to the Red Sea. Now what? We're landlocked. we got nowhere to go. Pharaoh's going after him. He knows he's got him cornered. Verse 10, when Pharaoh drew near, the children of Israel lifted their eyes, and behold, the Egyptians marched after them. So they were very afraid, and the children of Israel cried out to the Lord. Then they said to Moses, because there were no graves in Egypt, have you taken us away to die in the wilderness? Why have you dealt with us to bring us up out of Egypt? Is, it, is this not the word that we told you in Egypt, saying, let us alone that we may serve the Egyptians? For it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than that we should die in the wilderness." 
They're already complaining. Now look at the miraculous events that's led to this, this moment, and they're already like, well, here we go, it's all over, we're going to die. Yeah, God was good, God was faithful, God did exactly what he said he was going to do, but now we're going to die. Even though they know the promises of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, that they would enter into the promised land. What's standing between them and the promised land? A lake, the Red Sea. So anybody who trusts the word of the Lord will know, they're like, well, I don't know how we're going to get there, you know, but maybe a boat, I don't know. So look at verse 13. And Moses said to the people, do not be afraid, stand still, and see, now watch this, the salvation of the Lord, which he will accomplish for you today, for the Egyptians whom you see today, you shall see again no more forever. Now I want to pause on that, that word salvation. We think of that as a New Testament term, don't we? But it's not a New Testament term, it's used many times in the Old Testament. But what does it mean here? Salvation of what? Well, this would be salvation from Egyptians. But we know that there's pictures being developed here. Now, I didn't put this in here, and I should have, but I want you, if you've got a Bible, it's one of these things. I know we don't carry them much anymore. You can turn it on your phone. Go to Genesis chapter 49. I want to show you the first place that this word is used. Now, there is a rule that the law of first mention that anytime something is mentioned for the first time, that meaning typically carries on to where you go. So we're going to go back to the first time that the word salvation is mentioned in the Bible. It's in Genesis 49 and verse 10. This is where it comes. Now, the word salvation isn't used here directly, but the Hebrew word that we translate salvation is. Now watch this, verse 10. The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor a lawgiver from between his feet until Shiloh comes, and to him shall be the obedience of the people. The Hebrew word that is used for salvation is used in this passage. But who is Shiloh? It's a reference of the Messiah. You see, the term salvation and Messiah is always used together. It always means that. Who is going to save the people here? It's going to be God. That's the first time it's used. You see that pattern all the way through. Now look at verse 15. And the Lord said to Moses, Why do you cry to me? Tell the children of Israel to go forward, but lift up your rod and stretch out your hand over the sea and divide it. And the children of Israel shall go on dry ground through the midst of the sea. And I indeed will harden the hearts of the Egyptians, and they shall follow them. So I will gain honor over Pharaoh and over all his army, his chariots and his horsemen. Then the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I have gained honor for myself over Pharaoh, his chariots and his horsemen. You know what God says to Moses there. Why are you coming to me? You know what to do. There was an expectation for Moses to act out the will of God here. Okay, verse 19. And the angel of God who went before the camp of Israel moved and went behind them. And the pillar of cloud went from before them and stood behind them. So it came between the camp of the Egyptians and the camp of Israel. Thus it was a cloud and darkness to the one, and it gave light by night to the other, so that the one did not come near the other all that night. So what's happening? The salvation of the Jews is beginning. The angel, the cloud, moves behind them, blocking the Egyptians from being able to see what's going on. They can't see them anymore. Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and the Lord caused the sea to go back by a strong east wind and all that night and made the sea into dry land, and the waters were divided. So the children of Israel went into the midst of the sea and on the dry ground, and the waters were a wall to them on the right hand and on their left. Now, just because you see something on the History Channel or Discovery Channel, because they say, well, it was probably just low tide and it was about ankle deep and they could walk across. That's not what it says. It says dry ground and the water was a wall to them. Let's not change scripture to try to come up with some solution for this. And the Egyptian pursued and went after them in the midst of the sea, all Pharaoh's horses, his chariots, and his horsemen. Now it came to pass in the morning, watch, that the Lord looked down upon the army of the Egyptians through the pillar of fire and cloud, and he troubled the armies of the Egyptians. He took off their chariot wheels so that they drove them with difficulty. And the Egyptians said, let us flee from the face of Israel, for the Lord fights for them against the Egyptian. I mean, this is kind of funny, right? He's popping the wheels off the chariots. Then the Lord said to Moses, stretch out your hand over the sea, that the waters may come back upon the Egyptians, on the chariots and on their horsemen. And Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and when morning appeared, the sea returned to its full depth, while the Egyptians were fleeing into it. So the Lord overthrew the Egyptians in the midst of the sea, and then the waters returned and covered the chariots and the horsemen, and all the army of Pharaoh that came into the sea after them. Not so much as one of them remained. 
But the children of Israel had walked on dry land in the midst of the sea, and the waters were a wall to them on their right hand and on their left. So the Lord saved Israel that day. Out of the hand of the Egyptian, Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore. Thus Israel saw the great work which the Lord had done in Egypt. So the people feared the Lord, that's reverenced, and believed the Lord and his servant Moses. So we have the salvation of the Jews here. Now, they were the redeemed people because they were redeemed from death at the moment of, of the Passover. That's what that was doing. There's a picture there. But all of this stuff that's going on, now Egypt's out of the way. Now this is going to allow them to enter into the promised land because as they're going forth with that, of course the people hear what God had done to the Egyptian, how he freed the Israelites, and so everybody was afraid of them, as they should be. Even the Egyptians recognized, uh, this is bad, the Lord is working for them. Right? He said, because their wheels are popping off. God's taking the wheels off. You may have seen this video that was there in these uh, news articles a couple of years ago that there was a dust storm by Israel that popped up and it stopped at the border. But the people that were over on the other side couldn't see. There's a biblical precedent for that. There was an article written in a newspaper how uh, the, the Muslims were sending mu- uh, missiles into uh, Israel. And how they kept going off course and blowing up randomly and ended up in the water. And they said, their God keeps messing with our missiles. No coincidence, right? Because what's He been doing? He's been protecting His people. They're still His people. Yes, we are His people through blood, through covenant, out of the rejection of, of Israel. The, Israel rejecting their Messiah. So we watch this whole thing. The Passover is because the angel passed over. You guys with me so far? We have that. We've got to understand this here. Passover is the linchpin to the entire thing. Without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sins. The shedding of the blood of the Lamb and the application of that blood is what protected them or they were subject to the same judgment that the Egyptians were. So, we see that, we're going forward, we're going to go to Exodus chapter 24. I know I'm reading a lot, but I need you guys to see this. Exodus chapter 24, we're going to start in verse 1. Now he said to Moses, come up to the Lord, you and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu, and the 70 elders of Israel, and worship from afar. And Moses alone shall come near the Lord, but they shall not come near, nor shall the people go up with him. So, the Moses, came, so Moses came to all, told all the people all the words of the Lord and all the judgment and all the people answered with one voice and said all the words which the Lord has said we will do so what's going on here we've got the execution of the covenant with the nation of Israel God lays out a whole bunch of stipulations Moses this is what I want you to do tell the people you got the Ten Commandments the two tablets of stone written on the front and back with the hand of God there's 613 laws there's all these things they have to follow and do that and he says now listen if you'll do this you will be blessed, and I will remove sickness from your midst. But if you don't, you will be cursed. And what did we just read? Moses took the words of the Lord to the people, and they said, all the words which the Lord has said, we will do. So they agree to the terms. All right. It's no different than if you go into the bank and they say, we'll give you a loan at 5% interest, and you agree to that, and then you go back and say, listen, this isn't fair, I want 3%. Well, you've already agreed to the terms, right? I'm pretty sure your bank's not going to work with you on that. So Moses wrote all the words of the Lord, and he rose early in the morning and built an altar at the foot of the mountain and the twelve pillars according to the twelve tribes of Israel. Then he sent young men of the children of Israel who offered burnt offerings and sacrificed peace offerings of oxen to the Lord. Moses took half the blood and put it in bases, and half the blood he sprinkled on the altar. Then he took the book of the covenant and read it in the hearing of the people, and they said, All that the Lord has said, we will do, and be obedient. Um, They're lying, but that's what they said. And Moses took the blood, sprinkled it on the people, and said, This is the blood of the covenant which the Lord has made with you according to all these words. Now, who was the covenant made with? Israel. They agreed to it. The blood was shed. The covenant is now ratified. They said, The blood of the covenant which the Lord has made with you according to all these words. So they are now in a covenant relationship with God. Verse 9, Moses went up with also Aaron, Nadab, Abihu, and the 70 elders, and they saw the God of Israel, and there was under his feet as if it were paid with a sapphire stone, and it was like the very heavens in his clarity, but on the nobles of the children of Israel he did not lay his hand. So they saw God, and they ate, and they drank. Then the Lord said to Moses, come up to me on the mountain and be there. I will give you the tablets of stone and the law of the commandments which I have written that you may teach them. So Moses arose with his assistant Joshua, and Moses went up to the mountain of God, and he said to the elders, wait here for us until we come back to you. Indeed, Aaron and Hur are with you. If any man has a difficulty, let him go to them. Then Moses went up with the mountain and, and a cloud covered the mountain. Now the glory of the Lord rested on Mount Sinai, and the, and the cloud covered it for six days. 
On the seventh day, he called Moses out of the midst of the cloud. The sight of the glory of the Lord was like a consuming fire on top of the mountain in the eyes of the children of Israel. So Moses went into the midst of the cloud and went up there uh, in the mountain. And Moses was on the mountain 40 days and 40 nights. Okay? Now, so we have the Passover that happens. They escape. Then we have what? We have the covenant. I know I'm talking fast. I promised you that I would. Okay? And then Moses went up onto the mountain for how long? I'm just going to write 40. 40 days, 40 nights. That's a full day. All right? Now, the, the Israelites will often say if they start a day, it counts as a day. But when it says night and day, it means night and day. It's not a partial day. It's an entire day. So, he's up there for a long time. Now, what, what did they just agree to? Well, what are the Ten Commandments? Should honor the Sabbath, should not lie, uh, should not steal, should not murder, and you shall not have any gods before me. Right? So now we fast forward a little bit. Exodus chapter 32, verse 1. Now when the people saw that Moses delayed coming down, and from the mountain the people gathered together to Aaron and said to him, Come, make us gods that shall go before us. And as for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not, do not know what has become of him. So what are they thinking? Is he dead? We don't have any idea. They've been following Moses. Moses was following God. So now they're saying, we need a God. We need somebody. That will go before us. And Aaron said to them, Break off the gold earrings which are in the ears of your wives, your sons, and your daughters, and bring them to me. Those gold earrings were part of the slavery. That's how they were kind of like cattle tags, you know, ear tags. So all the people broke off the golden earrings which were in their ears and brought them to Aaron. And he received the gold from their hand and fashioned it with an engraving tool and made a molded calf. Then he said, This is your God, O Israel, that brought you out of the land of Egypt. Now for those of you that know this stuff, Aaron is going to become the high priest and everybody that comes after him. This is literally what he would be doing in a sense, is bringing worship to God. So now he's the one that makes this declaration, this is your God. He is the one that brought you out of the land of Egypt. Now you remember how we talked about that God always referenced, I am the one who led you by the hand out of Egypt. Now they're giving glory to somebody else for that. And when Aaron saw it, he built an altar before it, and Aaron made a proclamation, said, Tomorrow is a feast of the Lord. Then they rose early on the next day, offered burnt offerings, and brought peace offerings. And the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. And the Lord said to Moses, Go, get down, for your people whom you brought out of the land of Egypt have corrupted themselves. They have turned aside quickly out of the way which I commanded them. They have made themselves a molded calf and worshipped it and sacrificed and said this, is your God, O Israel, that brought you out of the land of Egypt. And the Lord said to Moses, I have seen this people, and indeed it is a stiff-necked people. Now therefore let me alone that my wrath may burn hot against them, and I may consume them. I will make you a great nation. It's going to start over with Moses. But here it is, God's not happy. Why is he not happy? Because they're already breaking the covenant that he made with them. Remember, all they got to do is keep the, the commandments. All they got to do is just follow God. They're going to have no problem. They've immediately stopped doing that. And so, of course, God's not happy about it. So verse 11, Moses pleaded with the Lord. His God and said, Lord, why does your wrath burn hot against your people whom you have brought out of the land of Egypt with great power and with a mighty hand? Why should the Egyptians speak and say he brought them out to harm them, to kill them in the mountains and to consume them from the face of the earth? Turn your fierce wrath and relent from this harm of your people. Remember Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, your servants to whom you swore by your own self and said to them, I will multiply your descendants as the stars of heaven and out of this land I will... And all this land that I have spoken of, I give to your descendants, and they shall inherit it forever. So he's going back to the Abrahamic covenant, the promises that's not conditional. So the Lord relented from the harm which he would, uh, would do to his people. Now, what did Moses just do here? He interceded on behalf of the people. And Moses turned and went down from the mountain, and the two tablets of the testimony were in his hand. The tablets were written on both sides, and on one side and on the other they were written. Now the tablets were the work of God, and the writing was the was the writing of God engraved on the tablets. And when Joshua heard the noise of the people that they shouted, he said, there is a noise of war in the camp. But he said, it is not the noise of the shout of victory, nor the noise of the cry of defeat, but the sound of singing I hear. So it was as soon as he came near the camp that he saw the calf and the dancing. So Moses' anger became hot. He cast the tablets out of his hands and broke them at the foot of the mountain. And he took the calf which they had made, burned it in the fire, ground it into a powder, and he scattered it on the water and made the children of Israel drink it. And Moses said to Aaron, what did his people do to you that you have brought so great sin upon them. And Aaron said, Do not let the anger of my Lord become hot. You know the people that they are, they are set on evil. For they said to me, Make us gods that will go before us. And as through this Moses, the man who brought us out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. And so I said, Whoever has any gold, let them break it off. So they gave it to me, and I cast it in the fire, and his calf came out. Yeah. 
Now when Moses saw that the people were unrestrained, for Aaron had not restrained them to their shame among their enemies, then Moses stood in the entrance of the camp and said, Whoever is on the Lord's side, come to me. And all the sons of Levi gathered themselves together to him, and he said to them, Thus says the Lord God of Israel, Let every man put his sword on his side and go in and out from the entrance to to, uh, interest to interest throughout the camp, and let every man kill his brother, and every man his companion, and every man his neighbor. So the sons of Levi did according to the words of Moses. About 3,000 men of the people fell that day. Then Moses said, Consecrate yourselves today to the Lord, that he may bestow upon you the blessing of this Lord every of the, uh, this day, excuse me, for every man has opposed his son and his brother. Now it came to pass on the next day that Moses said to the people, You have committed a great sin, so now I will go up to the Lord. Perhaps I can make atonement for your sin. Then Moses returned to the Lord and said, Oh, these people have committed a great sin and have made for themselves a God of gold. Yet now, if you will forgive their sin, but if not, I pray, blot me out of your book, which you have written. And the Lord said to Moses, Whoever has sinned against me, I will blot him out of my book. Now, therefore, go, lead the people to the place of which I have spoken to you. Behold, my angel shall go before you. Nevertheless, in the day when I visit for punishment, I will visit punishment upon them for their sins. So the Lord plagued the people because of what they did with the calf which Aaron made. Okay, I know there's a lot of words there, but we notice a couple things. First of all, we've got the incident with the golden calf. Immediately after they cut the covenant with God, they immediately break it. That's a pattern you're going to see all the time. The entirety of the book of Judges is about that. So we have the Passover, and then from that, I didn't write this in here, and I meant to, but we have the Exodus, right? We have the fleeing of what's going on. And then, of course, I want to I change this around a little bit because we get to the covenant, ultimately. But what happened after they exited? It was the Red Sea, right? Then, of course, you've got the covenant. You've got the 40 days. I'll put covenant here just so you can see it because it's important that we understand it. 40 days that Moses was up on the mountain, and then you've got the golden calf. This is all starting to deal with the things that the people were doing. Their heart was hard. Their heart was far from God. They weren't doing what they were supposed to do. That's the bottom line. But what about some of the other things that took place? Well, if you go, and just for the sake of time, I'm, I'm cutting some of this short, but what else happens? Well, they go out, and of course, they get bitter waters, right? They find the bitter waters, and then Moses throws the stick in there, and it becomes drinkable. And they also complain against God that he said, well, we have no food. So what does God send them? He sends them manna, right? Manna from heaven which is bread from heaven. He sends that down. Then, of course, they were thirsty after this event. And so they're like, well, have you brought us out here to die? That We're going to die of thirst. And God tells Moses, listen, here's what I want you to do. I want you to go strike the rock. And, of course, it produces water. Strikes the rock, water comes out. All is well. So you've got this series of events here that, that goes on. This is a pattern throughout the Old Testament. All in relationship with how God is going to behave. When God brings judgment... It's because of something that the people have done. He told them that if you will keep my covenant, all my commandments to be obedient, you will be blessed. You will not be sick. You will not have anything that can come against you. But if you don't, there will be curses. And of course, they don't. And we see some of these things. Now, what does that have to do with anything? Well, when you get into the New Testament, you begin to watch the same pattern develop. But what did Christ come to do? Undo the work of the devil. Destroy the work of the devil, right? He came as the Passover lamb to bring uh, atonement for the sins of the people. Okay? We watch him do something pretty special in Matthew chapter 4. And if you're not watching closely when you're reading this, you'll miss it. So Matthew chapter 4, I want to read this starting in verse 1. It says, Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit, into the wilderness, and he was tempted by the devil. When he had fasted 40 days and 40 nights, afterward it was hungry. Now the tempter came to him, and he said, If you are the Son of God, command that these stones become bread. But he answered and said, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Now, I'm going to tell you that what Jesus is doing here is a supernatural undoing of what the Israelites did in the journey through the wilderness. Now I want you to watch this. The first thing we read is, how long was he in the wilderness? Don't we have 40 days here with Moses? Is that a coincidence? 40 days, 40 nights in the wilderness. Where were the Israelites? In the wilderness. Were they tempted during those 40 days and 40 nights? Yes, they were. You remember how I said that you could interchange Israel 
and Jesus based off the patterns that we just saw last week. Well, so the tempter comes and says, if you are the Son of God, then command that these stones become bread. Remember, he's hungry. 40 days, 40 nights, no food. There are people in this room that can't go 40 minutes without eating something. I'm not looking at my wife. I'm looking past her. <laughs> yeah. I take him to eat lunch, and we leave, and, 20, and he doesn't finish his food. And then 20 minutes later, he's like, can we get a milkshake? I'm hungry. Anyway, so what is Jesus doing? Where does this verse come from? Well, it's in Deuteronomy chapter 8, verse 3. So he humbled you, he allowed you to hunger, and he fed you with manna that you did not know, nor did your fathers know, that he might make you know that man shall not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Now, here's the thing, and here's what's interesting here, is man lives not by bread, but when did God provide bread? With the manna. When you look at Deuteronomy chapter 8, it actually ties the reference back to God providing the manna for the people. Okay? So we have Jesus here talking about this. It's a temptation that was brought against him in order to uh, make him fall, make him do something, right? Did the Israel get right? They complained against God, God provided them bread. But they were supposed to live on the trust that God was going to take care of them. They weren't. God had to prove himself to them. Was the enemy trying to get Jesus to prove himself to them? Yeah, he was. So you can see this pattern. Now look at this in verse 5. Then the devil took him up on the holy city. He set him on the pinnacle of the temple and he said, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, He shall give his angels charge over you, and in their hands they shall bear you up, lest you dash your foot against a stone. Jesus said to him, It is written again, You shall not tempt the Lord your God. Now what's happening here? Okay? You have... Um, all of this different stuff that's going on. Where is the holy city? It's Jerusalem, the pinnacle of the temple. He said, if you will bow down, throw yourself down, angels will give charge over you. He's quoting a Bible verse out of Psalm. And in their hands they shall bear you up, lest you dash your foot against a stone. This here are misquotes. They're half verses. That's why I always, it always troubles me when I hear a preacher that will quote, I'm just going to read the first line out of this verse. That always bothers me a little bit because there's always more to the story. You want to catch the context. But here we've got this going on. You shall not tempt the Lord your God, was Jesus' response. Well, where does that come from? Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 16. You shall not tempt the Lord your God as you tempted Him in Massa. Okay? You guys remember when we read about Massa? Probably not, because that's coming out of Exodus chapter 17. Look at Exodus 17, verse 2. Therefore the people contended with Moses and said, Give us water that we may drink. And so Moses said to them, Why do you contend with me? Why do you tempt the Lord? And the people thirsted there for water, and the people complained against Moses and said, Why is it that you have brought us up out of Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? So Moses cried out to the Lord, saying, What shall I do with this people? They are almost ready to stone me. And the Lord said to Moses, Go on before the people and take you from, from you some of the elders of Israel. Also take in your hand the rod which you have struck the river, and go, behold, I will stand before you there on the rock in Horeb, and you shall strike the rock, and water will come out of it that the people may drink. And Moses did so in the sight of the elders of Israel, so he called the name of the place Massa and Meribah because of the contention of the children of Israel and because they tempted the Lord, saying, Is the Lord among us not or not? So what do we have here? Jesus specifically quotes and response to not tempting the Lord. It's a quote referencing back to this Exodus thing. We know what the Passover is. We know that Jesus is the Passover lamb, right? We know all of this. So, we're watching this pattern. What's he doing? He's getting it right where the Israelites got it wrong. Now let's go back. Verse 8. Again, the devil took him up on an exceedingly high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, all these things I will give you if you fall down and worship me. And then Jesus said to him, away with you, Satan, for it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. Then the devil left him and behold, angels came and ministered him. You shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve was on the Ten Commandments, which were broken as a result of what? The golden calf. All of these things are referencing back to something the Israelites got wrong. You see, they were in covenant relationship with God. 
He brought them through the Red Sea. He took care of them. He made sure they had everything that they needed. All they had to do was keep the, the conditions of the covenant, and they didn't do it. So Jesus comes and spiritually undoes all of this stuff. Those numbers are not arbitrary. There's a reason that they are there. But it goes one step further, because look at 1 Corinthians chapter 10, starting at verse 1. Moreover, brethren, I do not want you to become unaware that all our fathers, who are the fathers, all those that came before them, the Israelites, were under the cloud, all passed through the sea. Now, what are we talking about? The Red Sea, the cloud, cloud by day, fire by night. All were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. All ate the same spiritual food and all drank the same spiritual drink. What are we talking about? Water from the rock, manna, right? For they drank of that spiritual rock that followed them. That rock was Christ. Paul tells us that the rock that Moses struck was Christ, and that rock followed them around the wilderness. You see later where he's supposed to speak to the rock, and he doesn't. All of these patterns are developing for one reason. is God promised the Israelites that if you'll keep my commandments, I will not put the diseases of Egypt. I will not let sickness come near you. you will, your clothes won't wear out. None of this stuff will come upon you. They don't get it right. They miss it. They screw it up. Jesus comes on the scene creating a new and better covenant with the same people, right? Jeremiah 31, a new covenant that I'll give you, not like the one uh, with your fathers when I took them by the hand and took them out of Egypt. All of this is being done here for a reason. So here's the question. If there are promises under the old covenant hinged upon the behavior and your obedience to that covenant, could the Israelites confidently expect that God would respond the way he said he would? And the answer is yes. I'm bringing this full circle of where we're going. Given that Jesus was the Passover lamb fulfilling Passover, and that he comes in here and kind of undoes all of this stuff. And you watched the patterns last week develop of how the picture is actually the same that's going on and how the Israelites got free and all this other stuff. Can we not confidently expect that God, according to this new covenant made with better promises, will respond in the way that he says that he will? The answer is yes. What are the conditions of the new covenant? It's not made with you and me. It's a covenant made between the Father and the Son on behalf of man. The old covenant was conditional. They could keep it, they could break it. You cannot break the new covenant that you're in. Thus, if the promises are in there that we should walk in the power of God, then we should confidently expect that God will perform the way that He says He will. You guys with me? I know this was a lot of information, but you've got to catch this. God moves in predictable patterns, not in mysterious ways. We have to be able to trust God at His Word. If we can't trust God at His Word for healing, how can we trust God at His Word for anything else? So there's got to be something we're missing, and there is. There's a lot of things that we're missing. So we are going to go through all of this again Keep building upon us. Keep laying this out brick by brick because I think the biggest thing that the church is missing today, and I mean big C, big C church, is that we have forgotten that we serve an all-powerful God who cares about the affairs of men. And He has put provisions in place to take care of us both spiritually and physically. Amen?